Hey everybody, this is Mike Van Meter and welcome to Recovery is Possible. And this episode of Recovery is Possible is brought to you by Retreat Behavioral Health, where there are endless possibilities for recovery. Retreat provides quality care at their leading mental health and substance use treatment centers, which are designed to offer patients truly personalized and comprehensive programs that are tailored to their needs. Retreat Substance Use and Mental Health Treatment Centers in Palm Beach County, Florida, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and New Haven, Connecticut do everything in their power to ensure that patients receive the highest quality treatment in a safe and comfortable setting. So reach out today at uh, retreatbehavioralhealth.com or call at 855-802-6600 for more information. And folks, today I want to bring to you Maggie Hunt, and Maggie is actually with uh, Retreat uh, behavioral health, and she's the director of communications and the regional director of marketing for uh, Retreat Behavioral Health. And she is going to share with us our, her story of her experience, strength, and hope regarding um, her recovery from opiate addiction. And, you know, folks, the opiates are just such a problem. And I know I've talked about this on a number of podcasts. You know, I work in a detox center right now, and that's pretty much what we're seeing. The majority of what we're seeing is opiate addiction, particularly fentanyl. And fentanyl has just become such a problem. And it's really just jumped onto the scene. And um, I find that that's a very, very difficult uh, drug to deal with because it's a synthetic opiate, which targets the recesses of the brain. And it's just very, very difficult. And I know on this show, we have talked quite a bit about alcohol, but I'm glad that we're sort of branching out into some of the other drugs as well, because it's it's just such a problem. And I want to get more stories. And, and folks, we know it's a problem, but what we're really interested in is the solution. And how do we get well from, from that? And with that, I want to bring Maggie on. And Maggie, thank you for taking the time today to talk with us. And I, I know you're feeling a little under the weather, but you're being a trooper there and hanging in. And yeah. you're, you're here to share your story. So uh, how did, tell us a bit about yourself and how we got here. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. Um, so my name is Maggie Hunt. I am 34 years old. I got sober um, in 2009. Um, so I was uh, I was 21, 22 when I got sober. Um, I only say that because my birthday is coming up. Not that I couldn't do math. I just <laughs> it was like a uh, different time. Um, and I love talking about my story. I still love helping new people. I've worked at retreat for the past. 11 years since they opened the, um, the owner of the facility was a consultant for a different facility that I frequented because I am not, uh, I went to treatment multiple times, um, which I can also talk about, but, um, the way that I kind of got connected here is, you know, through working at retreat, um, Peter Shore saw an opportunity in giving, you know, myself uh, as a newly you know sober person as a job at a treatment center and so that's where I am today um, but I'm from Pennsylvania um, the suburbs of Philadelphia um, I, I like to mention that um, substance use disorder definitely runs in my family that doesn't make me or it doesn't justify me as someone to be an addict or an alcoholic but um, I definitely think it's kind of like the predisposition there um, and I also say that because I saw alcohol in the beginning, you know, as something that everybody did. Um, so I always justified my use early on. Um, and so I grew up pretty normal. Like my, uh, I come from a large family. I have like 32 cousins all that live within the same area. Um, so 
I grew up with like family members more as friend, you know, more as like our friends than anything else. Um, and by all, you know, on paper, there was no reason, you know, I, I didn't have any significant trauma that led me to abuse. Um, uh, I didn't, my parents were divorced, but, um, it was, they, they, my parents divorced because of substance use disorder as well. My father was, um, also an addict, um, for prescription pain pills, opiates. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, um, I, on paper, there was no reason for me to, you know, be seen as a streamline for, you know, a heroin addict. Um, but then, you know, that's why I always kind of talk about how discrimination has no, no bearing when it comes to addiction. Um, it doesn't care about any financial things, what religion you come from, what your family looks like, uh, you know, it kind of takes everybody by surprise. And, um, you know, I, I started drinking. I mean, you know, for this pod, for this podcast, am I supposed to go into, you want me to jump right into, um, my story, Mike, or you want anything else? Yeah, no, uh, thank you for sharing that. And before you, you jump into your story, I did, I just want to point out that, you know, you mentioned how you gone to treatment many times, you know, as did I, and that it runs in the family, which is, you know, true with me as well. And that's, that's very, very common. And I think that, you know, people need to understand that that's an important part of this is that if mm-hmm. you have to go to treatment many times, then you do it. It's not, it's not so much how, how many times you go, but, but that you keep coming back and you keep trying and keep yep. trying. And so I'm, I'm glad that you shared that with us. Cause I think a lot of people get frustrated when they go to treatment and they relapse and it just, it, it really hits them. And, and I, maybe that's part of your story. You know, maybe you felt that way, but I, I do appreciate you sharing that. So yeah, I'd love to hear oh, yeah. your, your story. Oh yeah. Well, and I also mentioned that too, because I think that when I would go into treatment, I would be really embarrassed that I didn't get it that first time, you know? Um, Cause obviously when you go to treatment, there's some people who do get it that first time and they are able to kind of move on with their life. Um, it wasn't the same story for me. I think partially because um, I related a lot to stigma when it comes to substance use disorder, because if I look at what my belief system looks like of an addict or an alcoholic, it's not a, you know, an 18 year old, 19 year old girl who still lives at home and still, you know, family still supports them and, you know, is capable. Like I, I just didn't fit the, my own, own internal belief system for what an addict looked like. So therefore, like I disqualified myself pretty regularly when I would go to meetings or when I would go into treatment because I just thought like, you know, this is just a phase. Uh, I'm just, I'm doing what all kids are supposed to be doing. All kids are supposed to be, you know, drinking, using drugs, you know, it's this experimental phase. Um, you know, but for me, it wasn't experimental, you know, I mean, it, it, it always was, um, much more chronic in a sense. Um, I always say like, I'm not, I, I fell apart. This seems pretty quickly and thank God, because I don't think that I would have made it past the age of 25 if I did not stop what I was doing. Um, I got started drinking, you know, with friends here and there. And um, I, I, you know, didn't think it was that bad because when you're younger, you know, when I was younger, it was a little bit more difficult to get alcohol. Um, it was actually easier to get other substances than it was alcohol because, you know, alcohol, you had to be, to purchase it, you know, you had to be over 21 and no like real sane 
adults <laughs> buy alcohol for young, you know, for young kids. So you had to know somebody. Um, whereas drugs are, you know, easier to get, which is crazy to me sometimes. Um, when I think about that, because I was definitely using, you know, hard drugs in my teenage years, which, you know, I can't, I am a mother now and, and I can't even imagine, um, you know, my children using drugs. Like my oldest is going to be 12 this year. And I'm like, I started drinking for the first time when I was 12 years old. And I can't even imagine what that, what that would look like for him, you know? Um, but yeah, so I was drinking with friends on the weekends. Now I, um, my parents got divorced because of substance use, but I did not realize that for a majority of my life because my parents, my mom tried to really hard not to say anything bad about my father. So I didn't really know, um, kind of where he was at. Now I am, I was, I'm pretty smart in the sense of like, he still lived at his parents' house as an adult and he never had any money to do anything with us. And, you know, he, he wouldn't really get us birthday presents or Christmas presents or things like that because he never had any money. So there was definitely writing on the wall that he wasn't well, but I didn't really understand that until I got older. Um, because then my father ended up being like my, my best running partner really towards the end. Um, you know, because he had also struggled his whole life with prescription pills. And so, so was I. And so in that sense, I, you know, kind of used him as a connect. I mean, I was going to get high anyway. It was just kind of convenient that he also was, um, you know, we had this secret between the two of us that we were like, you know, using drugs together um, to kind of like make sure that the other one wouldn't go through withdrawal. Um, but I went to Catholic school um, in the suburbs of Philadelphia and I, I followed the rules and I did really well in school. And so I felt like if I did all, if all of these external things on the outside looked okay, nobody re would really say anything to me about, you know, what I was doing on the weekends. Um, you know, but unfortunately I started running with a crowd of people that, you know, were a little bit more advanced than me. And I, uh, you know, things started to happen where I, went to a hotel party. I got arrested for the first time when I was like 17 years old. Um, and at that point, I don't even think really my, my mom who was pretty stable that she doesn't really drink and she never did drugs. Um, she was a nurse. She didn't even really realize I was, you know, using anything. So we kind of just thought, Oh, you know what? It was just a one-time thing. No big deal. But they did put me on probation and I was on probation and I, uh, it was a six month probation that lasted two years <laughs> um, because I could not stay sober. And I thought that I was more powerful than the law because I think that the biggest lie about the disease of alcoholism and addiction is that it tells you that you don't have it and yeah. that you know and you can control yourself. And that's, um, that's exactly what it did for me. You know, like I would say to myself, okay, I'm going to be drug tested every 30 days. So I am going to use drugs for the first 20 days. And then after day 20, I promise, I promised myself, I promised, you know, the, you know, the world that I'm going to stop using and I'm going to clean up my, clean my system out and then I'll be able to take a test and I'll pass it. You know, and of course that that worked for the first month. And then like the second month, it was like, okay, at day 25, I'm going to stop before that day 30 where I have to get, you know, where I have to get that test again. You know, it was just constantly like, you know, trying to believe the delusions in my mind and that like it was all going to work out for me, you know. Um, uh, and fortunately, <laughs> I am definitely less powerful than the substances. Um, 
you know, but I do believe that putting me on probation kind of highlighted, um, you know, the, the issues that I was really struggling with um, at the time. So uh, when I was on probation, I was still in high school. Um, so I kind of had to follow the rules of my mom. I had a probation officer and, um, you know, after a little while, I um, got another underage drinking charge while I was on probation, which kind of brought, you know, no more was there monthly drug test, you know, like they were, the heat was on. Um, and I was starting to fall apart at the seams a little bit. And so it kind of, I graduate from high school, which was a miracle. They just, my mom, I mean, graduating from high school was easy for me because it, I wasn't super challenged. I did fine in school, but like just, you know, my mom was at this point was just like, I don't even know if she's going to, you know, graduate, but I did graduate from high school. And, um, the summer after my graduation was when finally like probation had 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 it with me and they put me in a juvenile detention center at 18 because I was still on juvenile probation. Um, and I went to treatment for the first time when I was 18 and it was an adolescent facility. And I just kind of told myself, you know what, I really got out of hand with these drugs. Um, it's definitely the drugs that are the problem. Uh, it's not me. It's just that I got caught up. And I'm just going to, you know, stay sober for a little while, get off probation. And then, you know, I can drink, you know, once I'm, once everybody's off my back, you know, because the delusion then tells me I'm 18 years old, you know, how am I not going to have a glass of, a glass of champagne at my wedding? I mean, that's just, you know, everybody does that, but there's like the delusion again, telling me that <laughs> I don't even have a boyfriend or a significant other yet. I'm already thinking about drinking at my wedding. You know, um, I don't feel like normal people think about their drinking use in years in advance. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I went to treatment for the first time and I would love to say that that, you know, was really the end of it for me, but it wasn't. Um, I continued for the next, uh, you know, three years to kind of use all resources possible to, you know, to not have to be, um, an addict or an alcohol. Like I, I just didn't want to have to admit it. You know, I tried changing people, places and things. I tried just drinking on the weekends. I tried just drinking and no drugs. I tried just drugs and no drinking. You know, I mean, I try anything that I could possibly do to not have to regularly attend a 12 step program, um, was really the route that I wanted to take at the time. Um, and you know, I would go into treatment and I would fall in love when, you know, I, I would fall in love with love while I was in treatment just to kind of take that focus off of myself. I mean, really, I tried any, anything I could do to not have to um, fit that mold of, of being an addict or an alcoholic, because, you know, for a young person in the, at the time that I was going to meetings or, you know, kind of what was, you know, happening on the outside, um, telling me at, 18, 19 years old that I have to go to these meeting for, meetings for the rest of my life seems like such a punishment that I couldn't even conceptualize, um, you know, and I don't think I was going to the right meetings because I was going to these meetings where people were just complaining, you know, there was not a lot of talk of the solution. So I'm sitting here like, if this is what recovery looks like, I am not, please don't, you know what I mean? Like, please give it to somebody else because this does not appeal to me at all. Um, and so, you know, throughout this time, um, I went to different treatment centers, um, and met Peter Shore, who's the owner of retreat behavioral health, um, when he was at this other facility and at this treatment, it was like the first time that they made me feel like, you know, I wasn't just a number, um, at the facility, um, you know, because he was like serving the patients and he's like, I'm the owner. And I'm like, why are you serving me? 
the food? Aren't you supposed to be like, you know, are you supposed to be like living a different life, you know, whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, when I did get sober and I did go into treatment, I did really well with the structure of like, I always kind of say like a power greater than myself because the treatment is really, you know, I'm, I'm putting my life into somebody else's hands and I'm saying here, I can't manage my life, but you can help me. And so when I put myself in treatment, like I do well, I'm the, you know, the president of the treatment community and I make friends really well in treatment and, you know, and everything seems fine. It's just when I get out of treatment, I can't follow it through with the things that they tell me to do because um, I get out and I get right back to my old ideas. You know, uh, the thinking that got me there is the thinking that I, you know, want to take as, you know, the best advice ever, <laughs> you know, when I get out. Um, and so, yeah, so the next couple of years, I was just pretty much going in and out of treatment. It wasn't until um, July 5th, 2009, um, that I was, you know, and, and at this point, I mean, I was a shell of myself. I don't even know, you know, who that person was really. Um, sometimes it's like scary to think about it, actually. Um, and I over, you know, again, like going back to the, the thought about probation, like I think that I'm more powerful than the substance. Um, and so because I think that, I think that I know whether or not I'm going to overdose on a substance, you know, but unfortunately, but I, fortunately my body is, you know, shut down when I took, and you know, it was one of those things, like I never thought I would overdose. I never thought I would overdose on one bag of heroin. I always thought it would be, you know, a lot, you know an intense amount of heroin, but you just don't, you really just don't ever know. You really just do not ever know what's going to happen to you. Um, and you run that risk every time. And so I, uh, luckily I was with people who did call, who called 911 when I overdosed and they took me in an ambulance, um, took me to the hospital. And I remember like being hooked up on life support because I was having a hard time. Like I couldn't stay. I could not you know, I couldn't stay, stay awake. I couldn't stay like alive. I kept coming in and out of consciousness. Um, and after a couple of days, um, I, you know, I, I came to and the hospital said, well, you know, you should probably go to outpatient treatment. And I was like, what really? Because I've been to inpatient treatment nine times at this point. You think outpatient is going to be the one that's going to, you know, do it for me. Um, and so while I was in the hospital, I didn't let anybody know where I was. Um, and I told my friends not to tell my parents where I was. So my parents were kind of walking the streets of Kensington, Philadelphia, looking for me. And then finally I called them and my mom was like, we'll get you the best help that we can get you. And that was, you know, I don't know why that was the end of the road. I know that I don't think I had in my mind. I don't think I knew I was going to stay sober forever, but I knew that I was really uncomfortable and I knew that people were really upset with me. And so I thought, you know what, I can at least just give it a couple, I can give it a couple months. You know, I can try this for a couple months. Now, fortunately at this point as well, my mom said, you know, I am going to send you to a halfway house, which I was just beside myself about because, you know, in my back, the, these faulty belief systems that I had, I thought that a halfway house was you know, for people who were homeless and were coming out of jail and that, you know, that wasn't me, but it was, but it was me, but, um, that's actually not the case. It was almost like extended treatment for me. Um, I went to a halfway house 
where there was girls, you know, at all different levels of their sobriety. Um, and we were mandated to stay there for three months. And I'm so glad that people held firm boundaries with me to keep me in treatment for as long as possible. Because now looking back at that time, it was so, you know, it wasn't that long. Um, you know, I, I would have told you it was forever at that point, but you know, I lived at a halfway house and, um, then I lived at a recovery house and I didn't have a phone or a cell phone when I first got sober. Um, and you know, I had to learn how to get a job. I had to really, you know, I really had, you know, I know like a lot of older people will say, Oh, I had to relearn. I had to learn how to do, I had to learn how to do my own laundry when I went to treatment for the first time. I had to learn, you know, I had to learn how to write a check. I had to learn how to be a responsible human being because I had been a child um, from probably, you know, the time that I started using around 12 until the time that I finished. I missed all of those, you know, formidable years, but not because people didn't try to teach me, just because I was so disconnected to the world, really. Um, just struggling with, uh, you know, substance use disorder, feeling like I was not connected to anything or anybody. Um, and, um, you know, I always say like, it wasn't the, the, the drugs and alcohol were the solution to the feelings that I felt, um, you know, of that disconnected person. Um, and so, yeah, so, um, I went to the halfway house and I, you know, I stayed sober and I went to 12 step meetings every day. Um, I also think that the area that I was getting sober at had a lot of young people in other areas that I had gone to meetings. I was usually the youngest person. So, um, that's why I immediately had to disqualify myself at some of these meetings because I would say, well, you know what? I haven't been divorced. I didn't lose my house. I didn't lose a car. You know, like I tried to kind of identify in these same ways with other people that, you know, it just wasn't very healthy for me to do that because, you know, eventually I was right there. Um, and so, yeah, so then, um, that kind of takes me, you know, up until I got sober, um, and since I've got, since I got sober, um, I did not, you know, I, I stayed sober. Um, I went to meetings. I built a really strong foundation of, for myself um, when I got sober. And then in early sobriety, I didn't get into a relationship right away because I thought, you know, I'm really going to focus on myself and I'm really going to, you know, take different direction. Um, and then I met someone and, you know, we, we were dating for a short period of time and I ended up getting pregnant. And had a son. And luckily, because of the 12-step fellowship that I was attending, I built a strong foundation of women. I worked the rest of the steps. Um, and that, you know, I was so selfish that I literally needed another human being to show me how selfish that I actually was because my son is born on my birthday. So therefore, you know, it's always usually a Memorial Day weekend. So, you know, I don't have a birthday anymore because it's always about his birthday, which is good. And I'm fine with that. Um, uh, but then I, I moved back home with my mom and I lived there for a little while until retreat opened. And then when retreat opened, I drove back and forth for like an hour and a half, one direction to get there because I really wanted to work in treatment. I always felt like I couldn't tell somebody how to stay sober, but I could definitely tell them all of the things to do to not stay sober. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was yeah. uh, one of those things. So when I started working in treatment, I really felt like, you know, I, I had found a calling that I had not had up until that point. Um, because like I said, kind of going back, like I was always embarrassed that I had gone to treatment multiple times 
Um, and I thought, you know, like maybe I'm a failure, um, you know, cause like, it's not, you know, it's not like we're talking rocket science when we're talking about staying sober, you know, we're talking about some, a toolkit of spiritual principles that, you know, are just laid at your feet that you just kind of have to pick back up. Um, so, you know, I, uh, so yeah, so coming into tre- coming, working in treatment when I finally like found somebody who was like, you don't understand. And I did understand that language of the heart opened and I've been uh, stuck ever since, you know, uh, I love helping other people. Um, I met my husband working in recovery as well. He is also in recovery. Um, he is sober longer than me, which he doesn't like to let me forget, which is <laughs> hilarious, you know, um, and, uh, only by four years, but you might think it was like 10, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so my husband works in the field and I work in the field. Um, we have, th- uh, three children in total now. Um, you know, and it's, uh, my, uh, my middle son has autism, so it's been a difficult, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say difficult, actually, I would say it's been a different change in parenting styles for all three of my children, really. Um, but it's been like, you know, the most beautiful experience. I mean, I never thought that any, any of this life would be for me. So to be in, you know, where I am today is just, you know, so amazing. Um, I still uh, attend 12 step meetings um, because, you know, I, I feel like the only way that I can keep what I have is by giving it away. So I, you know, so even though I do work in the field, I do recognize that I also need to um, altruistically be able to help people as well. Um, so doing that on my own time, that's for free and for fun, um, like to do that as well. Um, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a homeowner today. Um, I, I never, I never thought that would happen. Um, and you know, it's, you know, it's the little basic things that we do. Like we pay our bills, we show up for people, we, you know, do things like that. But also, um, you know, I also like, you know, got college degrees and, you know, followed through with some of the things that I needed to. So it's been, uh, quite an experience. Well, I, I tell you, man, there's a lot to digest there. And oh, by the way, um, <laughs> so there's a lot to digest. And first off, I'm going to tell you, you know, listen, you're going to have to tell your husband that he actually does not have more time uh, because to say well, the, the, between you and I, to your, to your husband, say the person that has more time today is the one that got up first in the morning because we're yeah, just you yeah. got 24 hours and I got 24 That's hours right. and, and right. I got up before you did this morning so I got more time than you because <laughs> yeah, that's really yeah, what it yeah. comes down to right is yep. the 24 hours and you yep. know and I I remember uh, going to a meeting once and I was talking to a guy and I asked him how many years he had and he says I have 24 hours and I said wait a minute I could have sworn that you had 30 something years and he goes yeah uh, well, I do. I have, uh, you know, 34 years of 24 hours at a time. <laughs> and he said, Mike, I just have 24 hours. That's it. And he goes, Aww. but you look at life that way, that that's how you get, that's how you get 34 years. And, and so, uh, so tell your husband that next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's true. You know, the, the thing is, is that um, you, you talked about how you had to learn these things, right? You know, you had to, you do, you weren't relearning how to write checks or right. do no. the basic things. You had to learn them. And I think that, yeah. uh, if anybody listening to this podcast is new, um, there's an old saying in 12 step groups. And that is, is that we, we, we stayed the age whenever we started using uh, alcohol or drugs, whatever that age was, that's where we are now. And then when you get into recovery, you're kind of at that that point. And mm-hmm. 
And it's it's funny because we we start to live life at that at that point. And I want to reemphasize too, it going if if you're somebody that's been listening to this podcast right now and you've been to treatment many times, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not it's not so much how many times you've been, but are you getting something out of it? And I know that with my multiple treatments, there were things that I learned in each one of those stays in treatment that I utilize now. And there was, there was just something that I had to, had to click. And to me, and we'll see if this is true of you, I know that with me, I intellectually knew that I could not use mood-altering substances at all under any circumstances. Intellectually, I knew that. In my mm-hmm. heart, I don't know that there's always that, uh, I, you know what? Yep maybe, maybe just a little bit. And and that's what was happening to me is, and, and you described that when you were on probation, you're going like you're, you're uh, I will reserve the right to use in the future. You're not dating anybody, you're not with anyone, but yet you're planning for a wedding, but you're not even dating anybody. And you're thinking, right. well, how am I, right? <laughs> that's addiction. That's that's the, yeah. the addiction. Yeah. The weird thing about addiction is it's it's a disease of the body and the brain right there's a definite physiological and genetic predisposition which you you talked about that's definitely there um and then but it's also a a disease of the mind it's a disease of the mind and the body and it's the only disease that we're aware of that tells you that you don't have it and then protects itself right yeah for example you don't walk into the cancer like if you went into the, the cancer unit and the doctor said to you uh Hey Maggie, uh, you you got stage three cancer, and you imagine this: you say, uh, "I don't think oh, I, I don't. do," and the the doctor will go, "Well, that's that's nice that you don't think that, Maggie, but you know we've run all these tests and we've double checked it, and you've got cancer." And you go, "Well, I don't, I don't think I do. I don't feel like I do." And they go, "Well." That's great, Maggie. This is not about your feelings. You have cancer, okay? Mm-hmm. That's the way it is. It's only with patients that come into treatment where we say, you know, you have, by the way, you've been diagnosed with a disease. This isn't um, jail. This isn't This isn't um, reform school. This isn't detention. You've been given a med- medical diagnosis and you're in a, a medical facility. And then we tell patients that they have a disease and they go, yeah, I don't think so. Maybe these other people do, but I don't. Yes. I don't have that. This is the only disease that does that. And and until I knew in my soul that I had it, and in my soul I could not use under any circumstances, until that sunk into my soul, I didn't get well. Is that Was that true of you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I also, you know, I also think that, I, I you know, I needed to... I thought that there was going to be like this, this model, you know what I mean? This like say like, okay, so once I finally admit that I have this, then everything else will kind of come to play, but I really need to to accept it as well. You know, Um, you know, because there was different times during my, like a relapse where, you know, I fought so hard to believe that it wasn't going to be true. Like I, I really went to the ends of the earth to try to believe it wasn't true. And until I was like, I, I thought it and I, I admitted it. And I accepted that this was going to be like what I needed to do to get better. Um, I think that that was kind of what catapulted me to the, to, to change. Yeah. And being surrounded by people that understand that and listening to the solution. And you mentioned 
that you would go to meetings early on and you got turned off by the fact that you would go to meetings and there were just people complaining quite a bit. And I hear that with a lot of patients that come into treatment. They say, you know, Mike, I went to an AA meeting and I just didn't like it. It was just a lot of mm-hmm. complaining and, and bitching and things like that. And I didn't get a lot out of it. And what I say to people is, you know, if you don't like that, then just keep going to, you go to another meeting and then go to another meeting. Because I agree with the patients. If you go to a meeting and all you hear is people going through what we call the drunkalogue or drugalogue, where they're just, it's just, you know, let me just tell you how much I I drank. And I always, I always found that amusing because it's like, I, you know, are you trying to, you're, you know, you're in a room full of professionals, right? Professional drinkers. And if you think that you're going to come in and impress us with the amount that you drank, you're in the wrong room. Okay, we we get it, we get it. It's a lot of alcohol, uh, but we're not interested in that. We we know. Look, it's kind of like to the young man or woman. Look, we know how you got here, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we want to hear how you're going to get out of here. And if you're not going to meetings where people are talking about the solution and only focusing on the problem, then then go to another meeting. And and I know now when I tell my story, in fact, uh, this, this weekend, I'll be going to a conference where I'm telling my story. I, I actually mm-hmm. spend maybe 10 minutes on my story and the rest of the time talking about how I got well, because that's really what people need. To, you, you know how I got sick. It, well, you want to hear how I got well, right? <laughs> And um, the other thing is you talked about having that firm foundation, and I think that that's critical as well because um, I had a sponsor told me one time, he said, you know, Mike, every day you're preparing for, for game day. You know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a football player, you're, you're, you're training all year round and, and lifting weights and training because, you know, then when you go out to game day, that's when, you you know, all those skill sets, all that training is going to have to come into play. And that's happened. You mentioned some surgeries. I, I've had several surgery surgeries since I've been in recovery. You know, I, in one case I was involved in a pretty serious cycling accident yeah. and I had to call on every tool, every, everything that I learned in both treatment and at meetings um, to keep myself from falling into that very routine trap. And that's, you know, ending up in a hospital, having surgery and having to take the opiates due to the surgery and not becoming hooked on those. And, mm-hmm. and how do you get through that? I know in my case, it was because I had built that firm foundation and you covered that very, very well. Um, yeah, it's very important, yeah, isn't it? Even still now, you know, I know that my only like protection, like in some ways is like the people, you know, cause I don't like to ask for help. I just, you know, I, I will need the help, but when I surround myself with people who know me and know like, you know, what bothers me, what doesn't bother me, it makes it easier because I don't have to ask for help. They just already know, you know, um, I can call one of my friends. She can say, your voice is weird. Why? You know, like, and then it, it kind of gives me that, that venue to kind of open up and then, you know, continue to be vulnerable and then, you know, and that's why I find my, you know, my, my support network and, my family, my friends, that foundation to be so critical, so critical as like kind of that, that protection. Yeah. And I think COVID really highlighted the need for people to have that foundation. There's so many people that relapsed after uh, or during COVID rather, because, you know, the, just that support network was shut down. You know, we first time in 12 step history that I'm aware of that we actually shut meetings down and people couldn't meet in isolation because addiction in a lot of ways is, is isolation, whereas recovery is community and it was a forced isolation. And I mean, I I've known, and I'm sure, you know, people too, that had many years of sobriety and then went back out as, as a result of the isolation and not 
maintaining that firm foundation. I mean, you had to work, all of us, even those that have been in recovery for a while, had to really dig deep and go back to our, our roots into recovery to ensure that uh, bad things didn't happen to us during the COVID time. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, tell us a bit now the retreat, which is where you're working now. Uh, yeah. A lot of so you you are one of the sponsors, uh, or you are the sponsor of this particular podcast. And can you tell us a bit about the programs that you have there, and the locations, and and are there differences in the locations? Uh, just a little bit about uh, what what the whole organization does. Uh, yes, retreat um, opened in 2011. When we opened, um, we were treating individuals with substance use disorder. Um, and we were treating people who had co-occurring disorders as well. We had a large veteran population. There was a need for a veteran for a veteran treatment um, in the area because there was a lot of um, uh, VA hospitals that didn't have um, the resources that they could to treat the amount of people that they needed to. So um, we started out when we treating, you know, a large veteran population, and then. You know, throughout the time, we found that we wanted to connect people so that they could be relatable to each other. So we kind of take a team approach. So when somebody comes in, we'll do an assessment with them. We kind of like piggyback on what their needs are, what their age group is, um, what, you know, what's pressing on the externally and internally. And then we place them with a therapist that, you know, specializes in that. So if it's, you know, a younger uh, you know, because a lot of the younger people, like you said, are using heroin and fentanyl. And so, you know, we'll have a therapist that, you know, does really well with that population. And then they'll separate it like male and female. And then um, we also have a large first responder program um, that they had that we have always been treating, but we really kind of honed in on some of the clinical components regarding first responders. Um, it's a difficult, you know, that the population itself, you know, for especially for police officers or firefighters, you know, they worry about where they're going to go to treatment. They want to make sure that like if they're going to be with somebody that they can really relate to that person and they can kind of piggyback off that person and they have the same struggles because I think a lot of times somebody, you know, a veteran or a first responder will come into treatment and they have experienced a different level of trauma than somebody else has. And the other person who is definitely well-intentioned says like, oh yeah, I totally know what you mean. And we don't, you know, I mean, there's the, there's the civilians, people who have not experienced that, you know, it is, it, we just cannot understand the volume of, you know, trauma or experiences that that other person has gone through. So it really takes specialized programming to be able mm-hmm. to treat those, uh, that population. Um, and so we did get licensed for both primary mental health residential um, and substance use disorder um, so that we're licensed for both in Florida and Pennsylvania. Our Connecticut facility, Connecticut, um, took us quite a few years to open. So right now in, in Connecticut, we're doing um, it has to be primary substance use and secondary mental health, whereas the other facilities can be primary uh, mental health or primary substance abuse or both. Um so uh, it's been kind of like a learning process as, as we continue to change. We always want to try to be doing this, the best treatment that we can and the most clinically ethical in the most clinical and ethical way. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's been, a, you know, I love working for a tree. It's been such a beautiful experience to kind of see 
where we went from, you know, a small, you know, kind of like a mom and pop one place to now there's, you know, multiple outpatients and multiple facilities. So it's been, you know, very transformative for me as I've kind of grown up working here, really, you know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I started working at retreat, I think when I was 23 years old. <laughs> so, um, you know, as I, as I work with clinicians that are awesome and, and ethical, they were like, Maggie, you got to go to school. If you want to <laughs> do it, you know, you, if you want to do any of these things, you have to go to school. And I'm like, but I don't want to go to school. Should, <laughs> people should just know, you know, that I know what I'm talking about. And it's like, you know, no, you have to go to school. <laughs> so I continued to get my bachelor's degree and get my master's degree so that, you know, because even though I, even though I am a person in recovery and I can speak to somebody with that language of the heart, there is a large component of, you know, not advice, you know, like counseling is not giving advice. It's, it's working with someone through some of these experiences. It's knowing what to do when somebody says this and knowing what to do when somebody says this. And I didn't know that early on. Um, you know, but now since I've been here for a little while, I really have learned the most from my peers, um, at retreat and as well as like the different patients that have been patients of ours that then started working for retreat because, you know, coming full circle now that we've been open for, you know, over 10 years, there've been clients who have come in, um, and stay sober for two years and then they come work for us. And that is, you know, beautiful to see that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad that you're doing that. And I, I'm glad to hear the first first responder and military component that you're talking about. Cause I know that that was something that I faced when in early recovery, I would come in and I would talk to a counselor and they would say, Oh, I understand what you're going through. And I'm thinking, really? Right. No, you don't. Right. right. Really? You, you go to death, death scenes every day. You, yep. You've seen, you know, every week you, you pick up a dead child or uh, you yep. have people threat every, you see, you know, cause I, and I, that's one of the reasons why I went into this field because I felt like there was no one that I could relate to initially when I went into recovery. And I think that people forget that when you're a first responder, not just police, but EMTs and firefighters, uh, and nurses, uh, and and doctors. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, cause I work in a hospital now and I have the utmost respect for the doctors and nurses. It, it, they remind me of street cops because it's like, wow, you put up with a lot of the same stuff that we did. Oh yeah. And oh, yeah. you know, when you're a police officer, an EMT or a firefighter, you know, I think people forget if the average person experienced what you experienced as a police officer in one day, you would be in therapy for the rest of your life. Absolutely. But they Absolutely. do this every day. And in often cases, oftentimes don't seek any treatment whatsoever. But right. uh, I, I didn't realize that until after, or I, I remember talking to someone one time and they asked me how my day was. And I told them what my day was like. This is when I was a street police officer. And I remember the person just being horrified. Um, okay. It's like, oh, I can't, I can't listen to you. And I'm like, look, A, you asked me how my day went. And this is, this is just Tuesday. <laughs> We're not even right, through the right, week right. yet, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, but if you're, a, I'm, I'm glad to hear that retreat has a program for people that are in that category because, you know, we've, we've got, to, there has to be a place for, for people in that category, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There has to be a place for them to get what, you know, better too. And it's, it's, it's a shame, you know, because I know like clinicians and therapists, like they want to be able to you know, to relate or they want to be able to do, you know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. It has to be a little bit, there have to be people that understand truly. And so, you know, a lot of the staff that they have that are working in there with are either retired police, retired firefighters, retired, um, or just, 
you know, did did their did their you know 25 35 years in one thing and then switched you know to counseling or to uh you know peer support or something along those lines mm-hmm. and so um yeah yeah well that that's fantastic that's fantastic and so if people would like to reach out to you how would they get hold of you what's oh, the best sure. way yeah i mean um i have an email address which is maggie m-a-g-g-i-e-h at retreatmail.com um, or they can call, they can call the facility, which is 717-859-8000. Um, but I respond to my emails the same way I would like a text message. So it won't sit there for long. Um, <laughs> and I will give, you know, my personal phone number out to whoever needs it. Yeah. Well, what is just a, a tremendous story. And it's so nice to have you as part of the the retreat organization. And, you know, I can just tell you that your heart's in it and you know, the counselors that, their hearts are in it too, and uh, I've act. You know, I've been to the facility, beautiful facility in a beautiful area. Oh, thank you. And um, you know, just thank you for coming on the show and and sharing yeah, your experience, you strength, me. and hope. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. We're gonna have to have you back on. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because then we can talk about you know what recovery looks like too. You know, um, what recovery looks like as as parents. What recovery looks like. Uh, you know, as as a young person. Um, you know, trying to, you know, figure out the world. So yeah, I would be happy to come on anytime. And, and you go on and you just fulfill your potential because you're doing that. You're fulfilling your potential and you're fulfilling your potential by doing, you know, the, the, the great secret of recovery is we stay sober by helping other people. And you're doing that. You're doing that every day, which is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show today. And folks, again, this episode of Recovery is Possible is brought to you by Retreat Behavioral Health, where there are endless possibilities for recovery. We've heard a lot about that here today on the show. And so Retreat provides quality care at their leading mental health and substance use treatment centers, which are designed to offer patients truly personalized and comprehensive programs that are tailored to their needs. Retreat Substance Use and Mental Health Treatment Centers in Palm Beach County, Florida, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and New Haven, Connecticut do everything in their power to ensure that patients receive the highest quality treatment in a safe and comfortable setting. So reach out today at retreatbehavioralhealth.com or call 855-802-6600 for more information. And with that, folks, uh, thanks again for joining us here today on Recovers Possible. Look forward to talking again with you soon. Until then... Take care of yourselves. Recovery is possible. All right? Talk to you later. Bye-bye.